Your weekly, uh, your weekly one-stop shop for all things politics. My name is Scott Nelson. I'm one of your hosts. And if you are a regular listener right now, you are wondering, where is Andy? Because he usually does this part. Uh, we are missing Andy more today. Uh, he is out. He has uh, recently, he has recently had a baby. He had a he had a child a few hours ago. And when I say he, I mean his lovely lovely wife, Katie. Uh, they are both doing well. But Andy is otherwise engaged today so uh i am pinch hitting so forgive any terrible things that happen with the soundboard the music or anything else i am not alone however i am absolutely thrilled and privileged to be joined by a new host a regular voice that you'll be hearing from hopefully nearly every week here on the show i'm joined today by uh miss bailey perkins hello everyone hey listeners hey bailey how are you I am good. It's a Friday. So. It is a Friday. Yes. Happy Friday to all of you or happy, you know, whatever day it is that you're listening to this. <laughs> but but we're recording on a Friday and we're happy about that. So Bailey, thank you so much for being here. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to run through the state of the state address. We're going to hit that not um, not in a full text form, but uh, a kind of topical topical review of the state of the state. Uh, lots to hit there. Talk about what's happening in the legislature and um Kind of, we're we're off to the races, man. The second session of the fifty seventh legislature is is underway. Yes, it is. Before we get to that, um, wanted to take just a minute and Bailey, have you? Could you introduce yourself to us a little bit? Yes, I am excited to join the Let's Pod this team to talk with you weekly about what's happening in our legislature and what's going on politically. Um, I am born and raised Oklahoman. I'm from Lawton, proud Lawtonian, um, went to Oklahoma City University and OU for grad school, so I am a Sooner through and through. Um, I've worked with the Oklahoma Policy Institute, so that's where I got my footing in state policy in Oklahoma, um, just finished my time in Congresswoman Horn's office in D.C., so I have federal experience, and so now I am back in Oklahoma after getting engaged about five months ago. Um, now working with Oklahoma food banks on issues related to uh, food security and poverty in our state. So I am excited to talk about what's going on in Oklahoma and, and keeping you guys abreast of, of things to, to note. We, we are absolutely thrilled that you're here. You know, uh, I said uh, last week when we announced you joining the show um, that you are way more qualified than either Andy or myself to talk about all this stuff. So uh, we are excited to uh, learn from everything you have to say. Before we get into the serious stuff, uh, you know, you got here today and I mentioned uh, that Andy and I usually will have a glass of whiskey while we drink the show. And you said, uh, thank you. I'm a, I'm a bourbon girl. I think is that what you said? Yeah, I, um, that's, that's my, my drink of choice. What, uh, do, you have a, do you have a favorite? Um, I, my go-to is Bullet because I know it's going to be um, consistent and smooth. And so um, that'll be my drink to, to sip on. So now I wouldn't call myself a connoisseur, but usually that's my, my go-to when I'm in a social setting. That's that's bullet is delicious. I've I've enjoyed many a glass of bullet. And then uh, you you said you were in uh, you were in D.C. Best restaurant you ate at while you were in D.C. Oh man, that is a tough question because there's so many options and great places to eat out there. Uh, one place that I did find that I crave often um, is a vegan soul food spot. Just hear me out, everyone. Vegan soul food um, called E Life. And they had what they called bourbon chicken made with jackfruit. And if I didn't tell you that it was jackfruit, you would have never known the difference. They have an incredible macaroni and cheese made with cashew milk or with chickpeas. And they both are just incredible. And so that's definitely something I'm craving and I'm excited to taste next time I'm visiting D.C. again. That sounds like something I need in my life. Uh, I need every, like everything you just said. I need like in my life. All right. So you mentioned you soul food. Are you, are you a, you're a soul food fan? Is that like, what is that your kind of favorite cuisine? Just one you really like? What do you, 
I, I love food, so I love to ask people about food. So Sure. Um, soul food is definitely what I, I grew up on. Um, so I'm definitely always here for um, good pork chop or um, good mac and cheese and greens and uh, good fried chicken. But I'm also, I love seafood. And so that was one of my favorite things about being on the East Coast was being able to get fresh food often. So um, I'm always down for salmon or shrimp or uh, crab meat or, or whatever it is. So so I think, maybe, <clears throat> I think maybe you and I need to get together and do a separate podcast just on food. Because I, well, think, I, think, well, we, I think we'd have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. And shout out to um, JB Loves Food because he's going around uh, the metro looking for different places to expose uh, Oklahoma Cityans to on the, the great cuisine that we got around here. So absolutely. I love it. Everybody check that out. Well, um, if we don't get to it, we'll, we'll do this all day. Uh, the second session of the legislature kicked off this week, and it started on Monday with Governor Stitt's State of the State Address. And Bailey, you know, we were talking before the show, um, talk a little bit about why why there's a state of the state address, like what what it, what it means and what, what the purpose is. Yeah, so every year the legislature meets on that first Monday in February. And during that time, the legislature convenes and it has its formalities. And then it kicks off with the governor's state of the state address, which is a presentation of the budget from the executive office, but it's mainly a tool to discuss the priorities um, of the executive branch and the governor for that upcoming year. The legislature can use it as a metric to decide in what things to prioritize and talk about um, during the year and what types of bills um, will likely reach the governor's desk or would have uh, more likelihood of getting considered based on the priorities he's setting forth. So for two realms, it's important that we have a state of the state to hear what the governor's budget priorities are, but also knowing what um, issues will likely be at the forefront for this session. Yeah, this is the governor saying like, all right, here is what here if I had my druthers, this is what I would like for you guys to focus on over the next four months. Sometimes that works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Last year, you know, the governor laid out several priorities in his state of the state address. And I, I think he got nearly all of them. Um, I will say, and I'm, I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are. I am less convinced that the governor is going to get all of his priorities met this year to the same degree that he did last year. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but I'm, I'm a little more skeptical. What do you think? Well, this state of the state has a pretty broad and ambitious range of goals that the governor wants to accomplish. And they are things that may take time and they may because they're very complex things we're talking about in some cases with agency consolidation changing systems and so that's something that may not necessarily happen overnight and you have two bodies at the same time that have equal power the house and the senate that also have their priorities um and so it's about how do you align um the three branches to then figure out what's accomplishable and so we'll see what is um, what what the legislature is is interested in in doing this year? Beautiful, beautiful. Um, just a real quick kind of looking back on this first week of the legislature before we get into the state of the state. Bailey, was there anything that really jumped out to you here in the in the first week? Um, they missed a day. They missed they missed Wednesday at the Capitol because of the snow. Um, but they were in session uh, Monday, Tuesday. Thursday and then for a little while this morning I think the house was in session Um, anything anything jump out to you Um, for this week um, there are a few bills that were heard in committees and so I know that there was a bill focusing on homeless youth that came out of committee which is a good thing Um, but then there was also a bill uh, that went through committee and was heard on the house floor so the first bill uh, for this session related to uh, removing um, licensing for or revoking licensing for doctors who perform abortion services. And so I know that connects to um, on February 5th, uh, pro-life advocates had Rose Day. And I think that um, intersects with many um, conservative ideas, especially in this election season, wanting to see um, 
bills on abortion move forth. And so we saw that push happen during the first week of session. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> I can already tell like this session is going to give me a lot of migraines because uh, we're in the middle of an election season. So I feel like the fact that we've got session and election season at the same time means we're going to see even more of these like uh, kind of ideology bills. Right. We're going to see more bills. Absolutely. We're going to see more abortion and more guns and more, you know, more of this than the other. Um, it, uh, yeah, you know, the, uh, the, the bill that, uh, this is, I think house bill eleven twelve. this is a holdover bill from last year. Right. So one thing to remember, and I think we talked about this briefly last week or the week before. So bills that were introduced last year, but did not get heard, but also didn't like die. Um, and maybe even bills that died. What are the, I can't remember the exact rules on that, but there are bills that can be held over from last session to this session and they can be heard again. And so this was a, a holdover a carryover bill from last year that passed off the house floor this week on a party line vote. I want to say it was 21 to 72, I think something like that. Um, then it's a, and it's a bill that is, it's an anti-abortion bill that says that any, that the, it directs the Oklahoma state medical board of licensure and supervision to remove the license of any doctor who performs an abortion with exceptions for the life of the mother. Um, one bill that I was actually really encouraged by this week, this is House Bill 3024, uh, sponsored by Representative Carol Bush. This passed the House Judiciary Committee. Committee, this is a bill that would re- remove the statute of limitations on the prosecution of child trafficking and sexual crimes against children. So this passed out of out of the House Judiciary Committee and uh, will be headed next to the floor. I don't know when it's on the calendar, um, but this, I think, is a, a really good bill by uh, Representative Bush, um, and hopefully that makes some progress well and this was a great opportunity to plug that if you want to follow um when bills are going to be on committee agenda they're updated regularly on uh, oklegislature.gov or if you want to look specifically on a house page okhouse.gov or oksenate.gov you can click those pages and see what's going to be heard either in committee that week or on that day or what's going to be heard on the house floor that week as well. You any, you any bills you're following Bailey here, you're with the, you're doing work with the food bank on uh, child uh, hunger, right? Um, yes. So I assume you have like a dozen bills or dozens of bills that you're following. Sure. So we're, we're looking at different um, pieces of legislation as session goes on. Um, one of the, the challenges is that it's figuring out which bills will move through the process and which ones won't. There are well over 2000 bills um, that are being considered this session. And I heard a statistic that only about 17% of bills last session actually made it to the governor's desk. And so I always describe this process as the litmus test of going through the uh, committee process, going through the floor, and then actually getting to uh, the governor's desk for signature. And so we're looking at um, what are ways that at at the food banks, how can we feed the line, meaning uh, how do we serve more Oklahomans who are hungry in the state um, through the work that we do with food distribution, working with our pantries and uh, soup kitchens um, and other community partners who are serving food to Oklahomans in need? And then how do we um, shorten the line, meaning how do we ensure that Oklahomans have the, the necessary economic tools and and quality of life to be able to be self-sufficient. And so we're looking at things like the earned income tax credit. There's a few bills out there that would add refundability to the earned income tax credit. The challenge is that a few years ago, the legislature was in a very bad place with um, the state budget and needed sources of revenue in order to maintain a balanced budget because Oklahoma is required to have a balanced budget. Um, and one of the places where they got revenue from for that balanced budget is um, through the earned income tax credit, making it non-refundable. So once your tax liability, if you were eligible to receive that credit, once your tax liability was covered, then you didn't get that money back Um during tax season. And so there are a lot of Republican and Democratic legislators who care about the earned income tax credit and want to see that refundability um, because it's known um, as um, a strong anti-poverty tool to make sure that families are able to get that 
tax relief um, and get that extra money in their pocket that they could uh, dump back into the economy for the things that they need. And so that's one bill that we are following and hope that the legislature will act on. Um, we're also making sure that our programs are maintained and protected, um, like SNAP, ensuring that we don't um, add any barriers to programs that would keep people from getting um, that assistance that they need. Um, and then we're also looking at how do we um, ensure that Oklahomans have access to health care. So we're excited to see um, movement and conversations around Medicaid expansion to make sure that more Oklahomans can, can get health access. Here is my response to that. Oh, man, I messed it up. There we go. I'm uh, so I'm, I'm running the soundboard for the first time today, but that uh, <laughs> that was the applause. No, I think those are all. I mean, I'm, I mean, all things that I'm watching as well. Certainly, you know, someone who's concerned about healthcare and works in healthcare, and also just concerned about fairness and fairness in government and good government. Um, EITC, I think, is 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 huge. Obviously, Medicaid expansion. We're gonna, we're gonna talk a whole lot about healthcare in a minute, um, and what the governor had to say about that in his state of the state. But shall we? What do you think? Shall we? Uh, just get into it and start start talking about state of the state. Absolutely. Awesome. So um, the governor gave his address on Monday. It's about 45 minutes long. Our original plan was to um, kind of go through it like line by line, play the audio and then kind of jump in. But with the length of the speech and um, our verbosity, even without Andy, um, we thought that that might end up uh, being a three hour podcast. So um, we're going to go through and do kind of a, a topical review uh, talk a little bit about what the governor said what we think it means what we think it what the implications are in terms of policy as well as in the legislative session sound good that sounds great all right let's i'm gonna have you kick it off with a uh, criminal criminal justice what were you, what can you kind of briefly summarize what the governor said about crim- criminal justice and then what your thoughts are what your thoughts are about the the future and kind of ongoing efforts of those proponents of criminal justice reform here in Oklahoma last year, we, uh, the governor signed in to law, um, an incredible bill had been years in the making, um, commuted the sentences, I think of like four ultimately resulted in the release of like 456, mm-hmm. I think, um, folks from prison, the largest commutation and uh, release in, I think anywhere in American history on a single day. Um, so some, a lot of progress, but a lot of work still to be done. What can you tell us about that Bailey? Sure. And it's really great to hear that the governor is passionate about criminal justice reform because one of the pieces that, uh, that's important to note about the state of the state is that, again, it's where the governor discusses what his priorities are and the things that he cares about. And criminal justice is clearly one of those areas that he wants to champion. Um, Oklahoma, even with, um, there are about 2,000 commutations that have happened, you know, over the past year. And even with that, Oklahoma still is number two in the incarceration of men and women in the state and well, in, in across the country. And so, it's important that beyond just those commutations, there's additional work and focus on areas that will help um, reduce the prison population as well as decrease recidivism. And so I think the governor is committed to addressing both. Um, I heard the executive director of uh, the Pardon and Parole Board speak, and he mentioned that somewhere between 25% to 75% of those who were commutated have a likelihood of returning back if we don't have the systems and supports in place to make sure that they have what they need to adjust back into our communities and become self-sufficient. And so the governor mentioned wanting to get um, 1.5 million into women in recovery, talked about wanting to invest into county to community safety investment fund, um, and then trying to get money back into programs that will help Oklahomans who are facing addiction um, and programs that are helping those who were formerly incarcerated um, 
acclimate back into communities. And so there's also a lot of focus, even within the legislature, on sentencing reform and bail reform in other areas. And so we'll see um, as the legislative session plays out, um, which of these areas are able to formulate into law to then further um, movement in criminal justice. Yeah, no, I think, <clears throat> I think, I think I agree with you. I have, uh, I have any number of disagreements with with the governor on policy, but I I think that he is very much committed to pursuing uh, a criminal justice reform in an in an aggressive way. Um, you mentioned bail reform. Bail, I think bail reform is huge. Um, I think I th- it seems like there's bail reform is maybe a fairly heavy lift politically, right? There there are definitely some some interests in the legislature that uh, kind of want to keep the bail system the way it is um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I really, I think, man, I think bail reform would be, would be huge. Um, I, I think also we're going to talk about agency consolidation here in a minute, but one of the other things the governor mentioned was consolidating the department of corrections with the part and parole board yes. and trying to stream the streamline that process. So right now there's the pardon and parole board, which makes recommendations for people to be pardoned and paroled from, from the correction system. But the department of corrections is a totally separate separate entity and the governor wants to have those both under the same roof yeah and corrections covers um all of our state prisons and covers um how our our correctional employees are hired and their salaries and so everything regarding our state prison system falls up underneath um our um, corrections agency department of corrections so anything, anything else that stuck out for you on uh, on criminal justice reform? Well, we'll say that he has an interest of increasing salaries for those who are working in um, corrections, which is huge because they are grossly underpaid, and that contributes to some of the challenges that we're seeing um, with the revolving door of employees going in and out of uh, the Department of Corrections and even just uh, maintaining public safety within that space. And so um, I'm encouraged to hear that there is an interest in in raising salaries for, for correctional employees and then a focus on gainful employment. Because now that people have been released from commutations, um, it, the next step is ensuring that we're holding our a business community accountable in ensuring that those who have been uh, released from prison have opportunities to get quality jobs and to get the skills training that they need. And so that seemed like an area that the governor was interested in, in working through as well. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that that will remain a priority for him. Absolutely. All right. Next up we have, uh, we've got agency consolidation. So the governor spent, <clears throat> spent a lot of time talking about how, I mean, he he kicked the speech off by saying in his year his, in his year in the governor's mansion, he's realized that uh, the government in Oklahoma is too big and too broken. And yes, that is a quote. Um, and one of the ways that he wants to address this is by taking agencies that have previously operated in uh, quote separate silos and and putting them under one roof. You know, he mentioned Department of Corrections. He also mentioned uh, and the Pardon Parole Board. He's also talking about um, consolidating like the Healthcare Authority, uh, the Department of Health, and the Department of Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services. Trying to put all of those under one roof. Several other several other areas of state state government that he wants to consolidate. And the thought being that by putting people that do similar things under one roof, you can potentially like decrease your costs. You don't need require, you know, maybe you don't require as much manpower. You require fewer resources. You can utilize economies of scale and improve efficiency. Um, this is another area that again, I am, I am cautiously optimistic about, about this. Um, this is something that it seems like in Oklahoma, we go through periodically, like about every like 15, 20 years, like we'll consolidate a bunch of agencies. And then 15, 20 years later, it seems like that's not working. So we'll break them up again. And like, we go, we go back and forth. I understand. I understand why this, I understand why this is, this looks like an attractive thing to do. I understand why, particularly someone who's not used to working in government and comes from the business world, this seems like the logical next step. Um, I'm skeptical of actually making it work. 
Well, the concern is that for for many who are engaged in in government is looking at what do the details look like of consolidation? Is it just um, administrative consolidation? Is it consolidation of um, all of the functions of the agencies? Um, What becomes prioritized, what isn't? And so there's um, a definite need for details because consolidation doesn't automatically equate to savings. And so that cost-benefit analysis is essential to understand um, what will it take to integrate all of the agencies and is this the best way to um, bring efficiencies and to maximize services in the state. And so that's something that has to be considered beyond looking at um, numbers in a spreadsheet because these are agencies that work with hundreds and thousands of Oklahomans on a daily basis. And presumably they exist for a reason. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Especially when it comes to um, the efforts and the work in the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. And so um, the director of that agency or the commissioner um, who was there um, for like 12 years, I, I think, believe right? so, um, and is regarded as an expert in this space and a champion for uh, mental health, um, has resigned from that agency. So one concern is, who are you putting in positions to lead the agencies, and what does it look like for the agencies in setting um, priorities and, and, and ways to to meet need in Oklahoma, because when you look at all of our health outcomes, Oklahoma is at the bottom of the bunch, and it's going to take a lot of time and effort and investment to move Oklahoma in the top 10 when it comes to health care. And so this is definitely one of those areas that I don't see um, happens overnight. It's going to take a lot of um, thoughtfulness and planning if it's going to happen and be done in a way that's going to be beneficial for Oklahomans. That is the perfect segue, I think, into talking about into talking about healthcare, which um, was a big topic of the governor's speech, not just in terms of agency consolidation, um, but the governor formally rolled out. Now, um, he had made this announcement uh, in some capacity earlier, uh, about about a five days earlier. He made the announcement um, last week in Washington with officials from the Trump administration. And the director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. Um, but the the state of the state is when the governor really first started talking about Sooner Care 2.0, which is his health care plan that he wants to use to, quote, expand Sooner Care, expand Medicaid, and bring federal dollars back to Oklahoma, but also offer the state more flexibility. Now, let me just say, because if we if we if I don't say this at the outset, I'm gonna go off on a tangent and bitch about this for the next 45 minutes but um we're going to talk a lot about healthcare. you guys regular listeners know that we have been tantalizingly uh, dangling in front of you for months now a healthcare series um and we have started work on that we've recorded at least one episode we're going to have to go back and redo several parts of it because um of the announcement the governor made and one of the reasons that we've been kind of putting off putting and putting off putting um putting our voices on tape as it were um, is because we were waiting to see what the governor offered. And now we have that. And so I think we have a a kind of a launch point here to discuss healthcare in Oklahoma. Essentially what the governor has suggested is um, rather than doing what we would call straight Medicaid expansion or clean Medicaid expansion, which is expanding Medicaid to everyone who's at 138% of the poverty level or below. This is what was envisioned under the affordable care act for the Obama, from the Obama administration. That's a scenario where, Eligible folks would be automatically covered. The federal government would match spending at a nine to one ratio, so ninety cents on the dollar for every dollar that the state spends. Um, um, rather than do that, the governor would like to expand Medicaid in Oklahoma using a block grant program. So essentially, what this means is, right now, for eligible beneficiaries for Sooner Care and Medicaid. Um, the federal government for many, many of them spends about a dollar fifty to a dollar seventy five for every dollar that the state spends. Okay. Um, and and under Obamacare, those newly eligible folks, the the match is nine to one. So the federal government covers ninety percent of the costs, okay? Um in a block grant, 
rather than continuing with that federal match system where when like for instance the economy is good and not as many people need medicaid the program costs less and then when the economy tanks and more people need medicaid the the program costs more so it's a cost structure that like the structure doesn't change but the actual dollars vary from year to year moving forward the federal government would give oklahoma a set amount a set like a fixed amount a block of money the reason that the state would do this is because it would purportedly offer the state some flexibility in terms of how it administers those benefits. And now in my opinion, what that really means is it would let the state do things like have work requirements and drug testing and all these other things. Um, the reason that the governor says that he feels like this is the answer for Oklahoma is it frees the Oklahoma, it frees the state up from some of these requirements that the federal government places on how you spend Medicaid dollars. Number one, number two, he says it would let Oklahoma be more innovative in terms of how it determines coverage and who gets covered and the criteria that they have to meet three. If the state saves money under this program, the state gets to keep a portion of those funds and spend them however they want to. So that's attractive. But the catch is moving forward. That pot of money is indexed to inflation. And other than that, it doesn't change. It doesn't we know that the cost of healthcare um, increases and changes over time. And so it does a, not offer that level of flexibility. At a rate significantly greater than inflation. Absolutely. Healthcare, healthcare costs rise at sometimes two or three times the rate of inflation. So um, the concern from some of us, and I am one of us, <laughs> the concern from some folks is that a block grant over time is going to significantly decrease the amount of money that is available to take care of the folks in Oklahoma who need this insurance coverage. And so the only the only way that you make that money up is either the state has to come up with the difference or people start losing their benefits. And or the people who will receive the benefits will then have to pay higher premiums out of pocket. And we know that the population who is being served through a Medicaid expansion doesn't have the means to pay for premiums it could turn into a barrier for um, those who need care right and and you know i think i think proponents of this strategy will point to uh so-called welfare reform from the 1990s so this was something that happened in the clinton administration so when bill clinton was president and there was a republican congress um they significantly changed parts of the um and i i i hate even using the term welfare because like there's this conception out there that there's a whole bunch of people that are like getting checks from the government and that's just not true. Um, this is specifically talking about a program called TANF. Um, and Bailey, I would bet that you know more about this than I do, but as I understand it, the way that they essentially what they did in the nineties is they converted TANF to a block grant program. And what has happened and on and all the kind of same benefits were touted that, you know, this will improve flexibility and yada, yada, yada. But really what's happened is now it's been 20 years the pot of money hasn't changed because of inflation. The money is worth significantly less than it was then. There's also a lot more people that need those benefits. And so the end result of so-called welfare reform in the 90s hasn't been to reform welfare. It's just been that a lot of people who needed benefits lost them. And, and I think so it actually limits when we talk about adding those type of block grants onto Medicaid, it actually limits the state's ability to adapt needs um, in times where uh, if we have a, a poor moment in the economy um, and the economy crashes and we have more people who need um, or who lose their insurance through their business and they need access through uh, Medicaid expansion, then we're, we're putting people in a position to where either um, you'll lose benefits or um, the coverage will be minimal due to the limited scope that we're putting over on block grants. Right. And then the other thing about this, and this is the other, you know, it may not even be legal, right? Like um, part of the statutes that govern Medicaid say that if you're going to change the way it's funded, if you're going to grant like a waiver to a state, which is how this would have to work, if you're going to grant a Medicaid waiver, the state has to be changing their program in such a way that it furthers the goal of providing insurance to people who need it, right? Like improving healthcare outcomes and providing act, like in, increasing access. And there's really not much. Um, it's really hard to make a case, uh, a data-driven evidence-based case that that's what converting to a block grant does. So it's like one, it may not work. 
Two, it may not even be legal. Three, there's a referendum on the ballot to take straight Medicaid expansion and put it in the Oklahoma Constitution. And if that passes, then sooner care 2.0 is all for naught. And four, I I left my like crystal ball glasses at home today, so I can't tell you what the future holds. But there is an election in November, and I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that there might be a new president in January. There might not be, but there might be. And if there's a Democratic president, they will rescind this waiver. Um, and any time, money, and other resources that the state of Oklahoma has spent on developing this program will be down the toilet. So well, it's important to note that this is the first time that the waiver will be used in this way. Um, in previous efforts to um, allow states to do this type of uh, block grant with Medicaid, it's been struck down. And so um, it's it'll be interesting to see on, on how Oklahoma will do this and even implementing work requirements um, for that matter. I mean, yeah, work work requirements have been struck down, the, struck down by the courts all over the country. Um, the Trump administration says that they think they're on solid legal footing granting this waiver. Um, when this program, like when the waiver is granted and we actually start trying to enact the program, there will be a lawsuit. It's going to go to court. Um, the I guess the bottom and line it's is also happening through a executive order, which yeah. will be unique to see on how this plays out and and what it actually looks like. Yeah, I think I think the bottom line for me is on healthcare in terms of the state of the state address. Um, the governor laid out a lot of things. It's not at all clear to me how many, if any of them are going to happen for all of those, for all those reasons. But uh, moving on before we get too, too bogged down too, too much in the weeds. We, we love to be in the weeds here on the show. Um, that's kind of our, uh, the weeds is kind of our happy place, but uh, um, it is a Friday afternoon after all. So uh, criminal justice reform, agency college consolidation, healthcare. You know, another area, Bailey, that I know that you are. Um, I think I don't. I don't want to put. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't. Wanna, I don't want to say passionate, unless passion is the right word. Um, is transparency and budgeting? That's something that the governor talked about. That you, I think, felt strongly about. What are your thoughts on what he had to say about transparency and budgeting? I think uh, if Andy was here, he would definitely speak a whole lot about that because um, his organization. Freedom of Information Oklahoma um, is very focused on um, governmental accessibility um, to information and documents. And so uh, the governor has uh, championed making information accessible for the public to understand where their dollars are going. And so there is an effort by uh, the governor, I believe it's called the online checkbook, online checkbook. That's what it is, uh, where you can go online and see um, where dollars are going. And so there is this conversation about um, making sure that the public knows where their dollars are going and how their dollars are being spent. What is not being talked about in this state of the state, which he noted as well, is that there's not a conversation about bringing in additional revenue. Um, And so the conversation is, how do we change things within the system to save money? And how do we even save money over time? And I know that we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail. Um, but in order to do a lot of things, for example, if we're going to raise salaries for correctional employees, where does that money come from, right? If we're going to continue investing in teachers, where do those dollars come from? And so um, I'll be curious to see um, over session uh, what will be accomplishable with a flat budget over time. So it's great to have transparency, um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens over time with limited resources. Bailey, you said uh, you said revenue. That sounds to me like another word for taxes. Oh, man. I don't know if you're aware of this, <laughs> but this here is America, and uh, we hate taxes. Taxes are the devil. Not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily. I think Americans... It's, a, it's an American value to be a taxpayer, right? Americans <laughs> Americans take pride, and that's a, a talking point, uh, whether you're Democrat or Republican, is I'm a taxpayer. You, you hear that often, um, giving value back to the taxpayer, right? You hear that rhetoric all the time. And so when we connect what benefits are going back to each of us um, as those living in this great country of what comes back to us because of our investment in tax dollars. Um, 
people are able to see that, um, you yes. know, in, in investments into services because they want services. They want programs. They want to see things improve with mental health in Oklahoma. Uh, they want to see uh, education improve and better investments in our public school system. They want to see um, things improve with uh, corrections and see people have more resources to get jobs. So when you talk about those things and programs and less in taxes <laughs> you see that people's values right. really are that's, about i mean you know, that is like, that's the thing right like everybody like everybody wants the best school system in the world they want the best corrections department in the world they want the best roads in the world but all that stuff costs money and at the end of the day there's only so there's like i i know it sounds crazy but like there's only so much fraud waste and abuse that you can cut out right like most agencies in oklahoma over the last 10 years have had their budgets cut by 40 percent right this happened because of the oil crash it also happened because of profound reductions in the tax rate both of the income tax rate and other tax rates that we have in Oklahoma. Well, and the governor mentioned about um, the need to diversify um, our tax space and the economy. He mentioned it briefly and then moved on. Um, But that is an important conversation that needs to be fleshed out is what does a diversified economy look like and how do we bring in more revenue that um, will help to invest in these important services but not on the backs of working oklahomans and his his like refrain i think seemed to be we need we don't need more taxes we need more taxpayers and like that he said he said that that said that several times in the speech and like i get that and I'm, i'm a fan yes bring more taxpayers like bring companies to oklahoma like 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 diversify our economy but i also think at the end of the day for me it's hard to escape the fact that like we slashed our tax rates and because of that we have slashed our our state agencies and they got an infusion you know 18ish months ago with the passage of the house bill 1010xx that you know increased the gross production tax and, and made some other changes but we're still like we're still behind and like you're talking about like raises for corrections officers where it's supposed to everybody's talking about passing a cola increase this year cost of living adjustment for state retirees we're talking about increasing salaries for teachers we're talking about you know we're going to talk about tribal gaming here in a second the governor's wanting to take 139 million dollars from the rainy day fund to pay for education on top of sustaining on, services as they uh, are currently going right it just it just i get you know we talk about this stuff all the time i talk to lawmakers about it and talk to i talk to you know citizens about it and they're like well you know I mean, I agree, Scott, this stuff's important, but we just can't afford it. And it's like, no, but we really can. Like, we really can't afford it. You just have to choose to spend the money. Well, um, we have to, if we really want to be that top 10 state, uh, we have to make those necessary investments on the front end so we can spend less on the long term, um, especially when it comes to conversations about health care um, for criminal justice and other things, you have to invest in those. And I've heard um, different governmental leaders talk about investing in um, that preventative and interventions so that we can spend less over time. And and one point that um, I do want to mention when we talk about who is the taxpayer, it's everyone living in the state of Oklahoma. Um, Everyone is paying that sales tax, right? (laughs) When they go buy their groceries or when they're um, purchasing whatever service, because there are some um, sales tax on services or whatever the need is. Um, So even our, our most vulnerable Oklahomans are paying a higher share of their earnings and what they're bringing in into our tax system and so everyone is a taxpayer in oklahoma if you spend money in oklahoma you You pay taxes absolutely (laughs) all right um lastly or maybe next to last we're gonna talk about the budget here a little bit but um tribal gaming you know so i mentioned at the outset that uh i'm not sure if the governor is going to get everything that he asked for from the legislature this year and this is one area where I am very skeptical. So, um, and jump in here whenever. Um, essentially, we you know, we talked about this at, at length on the on the show, but a brief a brief recap. So, Oklahoma tribes, many tribes operate casino gaming operations. They pay fees to the state off of those their revenues from those gaming operations. The governor said last year that. He feels like they don't pay enough. They should pay more. Uh, they should pay a rate that's more reflective of what 
tribes and surrounding states pay. The tribe said... Well, he phrases it as uh, modernization of the compacts. Yes. Um, uh, And he said that, you know, his kind of of opening salvo in this discussion was to say that the tribal gaming compacts, which are the organizations that govern how much the tribes pay the state, among other things that they govern how they operate their casinos, um, he said that they expired at midnight on... December 31st, 2019. The tribe said, no, they don't. They go on. As long as certain conditions are met, they automatically renew. Those conditions have been met, so the, tr- the compacts automatically renew. The governor said, no, they don't. The tribe has filed a lawsuit. And so now this is all tied up in, in, in federal court. Um, the newest development has been that the governor has asked the court to basically say, while we're sorting this out, we basically want you to say that they can't operate class three games um, and, and, and issue a, like an injunction or a stay. I don't know technically which one it is, but he wants the court to say they're not, they're not allowed to conduct these gaming operations um, while we're hashing this out. Um, That would cost the state about $150 million because um, it, that's, that's what, would that's what the state would expect to get from the tribes and those dollars typically go into public education yes and so the governor has said um while we are putting those funds on pause while or while we're putting those gaming operations on pause he wants the legislature to take 139 million dollars from the rainy day fund and cover that expense he also wants the legislature to put 100 million dollars into the rainy day fund and he also wants to have a constitutional amendment to change the cap of the rainy day fund. So he wants to say that we're going to save more and we're going to make a savings deposit, but then we're going to make a bigger savings withdrawal. It's just very, it's a very kind of confusing situation. Um, if you in were, a time where we are in a um, budget neutral yeah. Year. So that's, that's the other thing is the budget this year is flat, essentially, right? Um, there's no revenue growth. Um, and honestly, those flat budget numbers are based on revenue estimates from December when West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was trading at $54 a barrel and now it's down to 50 So those budget numbers, like that that number may come down and we may actually be looking at less money than we were looking at a year ago. Um, so it's it's not clear to me that, that what the governor is asking the legislature to do as it relates to tribal gaming compacts is going to happen. Of note, Speaker, Speaker McCall actually came out last week. Someone asked him, like, what, what do you think about this uh, dispute with the governor of the tribes? And Speaker McCall said, uh, I think it's pretty clear that the uh, compacts automatically renewed. Like, and this is all, you know, a big, a big much ado about nothing. If you want a great, uh, if you want a great kind of background into why we're having this discussion in the first place, Nondoc has an article that talks about the invalidation of the um, of the dispute clause, the arbitration clause in the compacts uh, originally. That clause was thrown out by a federal court in 2017. So the fact that that clause is gone is why this whole sticky situation has unfolded the way that it has. Um, folks in the governor's office would tell you that they're not really after the money. They're after the, they're after the reinstatement of that clause or something like it. Um, but at least to me, it's not at all clear what's going to happen with the governor and the tribes. And I believe that February 12th is the day that essentially that check is supposed to come in. So we'll see what happens and whether (laughs) the um, governor accepts those dollars or, or um, if we have to go into the rainy day fund to uh, cover the potential hole that could be there. And so um, it's fascinating that this is um, a battle during legislative session that's outside of the legislature. And so um, I definitely encourage listeners to uh, check out that non-doc article to get the background and just continue um, reading your your trusted news sites on what happens from here um, because there isn't a legislative fix to this even though it's happening yep. during legislative session. Yep, yep, for sure. Well, Bailey, any, anything else from the state of the state? Anything, anything else that the governor threw out there that we uh, we should we should discuss today? The governor also talked about public education. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's 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 do it. Sure. Um, I think there's uh, a lot of concern. Um, 
throughout the education community of um, what it means to add additional dollars to, um, and I'm going to mess up the name of the scholarship fund. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wants to... The he, equal opportunity... Tax credit, tax, right? Yeah. So the governor, he so he talked about adding like 12 million bucks to, to, to education, um, but he talked about increasing the tax credit available to the... the it's basically... If you donate money to this fund that provides like scholarships for kids to go to private school, right, is the deal. Um, that's capped right now at five million dollars, and he wants to increase it to thirty million dollars. Um, a lot of people are very upset that he proposed increasing funding to public school by twelve million dollars, but increasing this the cap on the scholarship fund to thirty million. Um, um, so it's another question of during this time where. Uh, the budget is going to be tight where those funds come from. Do you pull dollars from public education and pull them into the private sector um, when there still is a whole lot of need um, for uh, our public schools and reducing classroom sizes and increasing salaries for our uh, professional staff um, who support teachers but make very low salaries and so there's still so much need and even with teacher pay that we while we're moving in the right direction we're still not quite there in ensuring that teachers have that adequate salary and so there's still a lot of conversation and questions around um, what that looks like and where those dollars would come from 100 percent 100 percent so everyone thank you so much as always for tuning in um that brings us to the end of this episode uh thank you so much to neil for being here thank you so much to bailey for being here for your first day today can't wait to have you as a regular a regular host with us every week um everybody don't forget to subscribe and rate let's pod this on apple podcasts Uh, that helps other people kind of find out about us and become better informed uh, and remember, you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This OK. Uh, me, Scott, I am an at SC Melson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. And Andy is at Andy OKC. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Let's Fix This. Our website is Let's Fix This OK.org. And there you can sign up for our newsletter. You can read our blog, find resources and details about any upcoming events. You can also make a donation or sign up to sponsor a podcast episode, which would be just awesome. Our podcast is edited and produced by uh, me and Andy, and now Bailey as well. Um, And let's pod this as a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is Rhino Funk by the artist So Down. And Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And always remember, the decisions are made by those who show up. See you next time, guys. Oh, 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 oh,